This is Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Kazarian. Today we'll be speaking with Professor Richard Antaramian, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Southern California, where I teach and write about Ottoman and Armenian history. His research examines the Ottoman East, the empire's eastern borderlands with the Caucasus and Iran. He looks at how changing financial structures in the 18th century transformed the relationships between the Armenian Patriarchate, provincial notables, and the Ottoman government. Basically, you have the circulation of Armenian capital through the institutions of the Armenian church acting as a kind of social adhesive, as a broker of sorts, that ties together the imperial state and the provincial notables. In the 19th century, he looks at how the state's major reform project transformed provincial governance and the relationships among different groups in the region. What we have is a state that is jealously guarding whatever power it takes away from these other groups in society. And we also talk about the unintended consequences of these reforms. That's what's catastrophic about the success, is that the Armenians take themselves out of power, right? They, they cut their connections, and they bank on the state holding up its end of the bargain. Before discussing the 19th century, Professor Antaramian and I discussed the 18th century, a time when the Ottoman dynasty renegotiated its relationships with different institutions and power brokers across the empire. For the longest time, when it comes to the Armenians especially, we only tend to think about this interface between the patriarchate and the state as this very kind of simplistic binary. The Armenian church, centered around the Armenian patriarchate of Constantinople in Istanbul, is this instrument that the Ottoman state uses to rule over Armenians, that it rules over this community through the institutions of religion, and that this then helps generate a sense of loyalty among the community uh, by guaranteeing them freedom of religion, certain rights, prerogatives vis-a-vis their own culture, uh, language, etc. And this is, uh, for me, a really incomplete story of what actually unfolds. What we see happening in the 18th century, to, to borrow the, the phrase coined by Ali Ayjolu, the establishment of partnerships across the empire, where the state is kind of developing arrangements with different groups, individuals, institutions across the imperial spectrum, and basically sharing sovereignty with all these different groups in order to get them invested into the enterprise of empire itself. The non-Muslim communities are no exception to this, and we see them being brought into these partnerships, uh, being made partners of the empire as a result. And you know, for the empire, again, there are these benefits to that, is that one, you introduce legibility, right? you, you render these non-Muslim communities more easily identifiable, you make it easier to tax them, you make it easier to work with their leadership in order to promote Ottoman sovereignty in different parts of the empire. And this manifests mostly ecclesiastically, where again, as I noted, you have all sorts of authority being given to these patriarchates that they didn't have beforehand, such that they can actually rule as hierarchical bodies. The main takeaway that we get, though, from the 18th century, and there'll be a few more that I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss, but one of the main ones is that the, the Armenian community, and the, to a certain extent also the Greek Orthodox community, see themselves as partners of the imperial state. And this is an, a very, very important point to bear in mind when we get into the 19th century and we talk about reform. 
that when we talk about the reforms that we see happening, they play out most dramatically in the Armenian community, but they play they play out in all the non-Muslim communities of the empire. For, for the people on the ground, they see this as the continuation or renegotiation of that partnership with the state. So across the 18th century, the Ottoman dynasty renegotiated its relationships with its non-Muslim communities via their church hierarchies. But that process also encouraged the emergence of lay elites within those same non-Muslim communities. It's important to bear in mind that what we see developing alongside the growth of the ecclesiastical authority of the patriarchate is the rise of these Armenian lay elites called the Amiras. And this group develops most of its political connections through life-term tax farming and through the tax collection system of the Ottoman state generally. And obviously, most people listening you know, know what, the, what tax farming looks like. You know, basically, you, uh, you have someone who purchases a tax farm. They have to put up you know, so much money at the outset, and they never ha- almost never have that cash on hand. Or even if they do, they need to keep their assets liquid. So they take out loans. And they take out these loans overwhelmingly from Armenians in the capital who have this cash on hand. So you have these Armenian elites in the capital who control much of the tax collection system of the Ottoman Empire. That helps them establish very pronounced relations with these notables at the edges of the empire. So when we look at the the landscape of Ottoman governance, we have all of these powerful uh, local leaders uh, most of these people get their hands on some portion of the tax collection system, and they will then have to go to these Armenians in the capital to get their loans. So for the, the Armenian elites, they want to guarantee their investments that they're making across the empire. It turns out that there is this wonderful institution that they happen to be members of that can help them ensure their investments. And that, of course, is the Armenian church. So what we see happening is as the patriarchate is expanding its authority and gaining the ability to control the activities of you know, monasteries at various edges of the empire, to control churches in, in different places, to exert unprecedented influence and authority over the clergy across the empire. You also have these amiras who all of a sudden have all this kind of cash on hand, who are just flush with money. And the amiras use this money to buy the patriarchate, essentially. Every time a patriarch comes to the throne, they have to pay an ascension fee, typically you know, referred to as the pishkish. They need to work with these amiras who can help support them, not only give them the money to pay for the ascension fee, but also get money to do things like renovate churches, get nice vestments, publish books that they can use to denounce the Catholics. So the, the clergy gets money. It gets all sorts of favors from the, from the amiras. Then the amiras get to control the church, which means that they then get to control not just individual patriarchs, but they also get to control the finances of the church across the empire. And this then gives them influence and control over, you know, through the patriarchate, over these clergymen at edges of the empire. And these clergymen then on the ground, of course, are going to ensure that taxes are collected in a, in a very profitable manner that serves the interest of both the the tax collectors on the ground, uh, which is to say these Muslim notables, and also then serves the interest, therefore, by extension, of the financiers, the Armenians in the capital. So the tax farming system created opportunities for laypeople to insert themselves into important political and economic relationships. As a result, 
There was a strengthening of ties among local tax farmers, Armenian financiers, the church hierarchy, and the Ottoman government. Basically, you have the circulation of Armenian capital through the institutions of the Armenian church acting as a kind of social adhesive, as a broker of sorts, that ties together the imperial state and the provincial notables. Right? It keeps those groups together. Really what we see happening is that this expansion of ecclesiastical authority is, tether, is helping tether the peripheries closer to the center. In this way, the 18th century witnessed circulations of Amira wealth that cemented relations between the Ottoman state and provincial notables, and also between the Armenian church and the Emiras. Moving into the 19th century, the Ottoman government began to try to assert more direct control. So we see a number of developments unfolding over the course of the 19th century. So one as this important transition where we shift power from groups, from relationships, and into the state. We discussed two examples of this, the reforms of the Ottoman army that came about with the abolishment of the Janissaries, and the reforms of Ottoman government that came about with the banishment of the Phanariot households. So first thing to bear in mind, so we go back to Selim III, and we see the introduction of the new order. This is the, another attempt by the Ottoman state to take away institutions or instruments of governance away from groups who exist either at the edges of or even outside of the state. So we see the Janissaries, this kind of corporate group that can contest power, that really has privatized many elements of, of governance for itself. The desire to remove them from governance and replace them with a new army suggests that we have significant changes coming to the social contract that orders the Ottoman domains. So this is the first, this is the first point. Obviously that fails. Uh, we have a Janissary revolt that leads to the, the death of uh, Selim III. Uh, Mahmoud II comes in and you know, he finishes the job, so to say. Uh, what we see happening is that the Janissaries lose. So now the, the, the work of the military is being folded into the government itself. We have to understand the destruction of the Janissaries in conjunction with the Greek Rebellion of 1821. And as Christine Filio shows in you know, her book that I, I learn something new from every time I go over it, Biography of Empire, you see the, the connections between the Janissary households and the Phanariot households are very, very clear. The Phanariots, who had lost control of their community, who had ceased to be able to guarantee the loyalty of their communities to the Ottoman state, are kicked out. Well, the, the Fenariots have these, they control certain governorships, but also they're very well integrated into the foreign ministry. So what happens when they get pushed out and they can no longer organize their power into households? We then get a translation office. Who floods into this translation office? Armenians. Not as people who can organize power into households and privatize governance, but as salaried employees of the port. So we see this shift away from shared governance, where we have instruments of governance that are held privately, these are all being taken away and invested in the state. Another realm into which the Ottoman government tries to insert itself is tax collection. So when we get to 1839 and the, the proclamation of the Tanzimat, the big thing is the abolition of tax farming. Because once we abolish tax farming, this tax collection, which the Armenians had somewhat privatized, ceases to be. This also gets folded into the state. So suddenly, these power-sharing arrangements that we see existing previously with the Janissaries, with the Fenariots, with the Armenian Emiras, these disappear. What we have is a state that is jealously guarding 
whatever power or sovereignty it takes away from these other groups in society. And this is why historians of the Arab provinces talk about the Tanzimat not as this great reform, but as the restoration of the state, right? the restoration of the monarchy. And they have a very strong, strong basis for making that argument, I think. In addition to the spread of direct government control in the 19th century, we also talked about how Armenian institutions became more politically isolated. We see through these mechanisms for managing difference, the removal of non-Muslims and their institutions from any sort of power relationship. And that's what's catastrophic about the success, is that the Armenians take themselves out of power. Right? They, they cut their connections and they bank on the state holding up its end of the bargain, which it won't for a variety of reasons. As we see the state rolling out this, these new bureaucratic tools of administration, the Armenian church then is conscripted to support this. And that is going to play out most dramatically, as I said, after 1856. And this is where we get the Armenian constitution. The Armenian constitution is this, it's a watershed in certain respects. There's a tendency, I think, to read this as a process of nationalization. Well, theoretically, it, it looks like it's taking power away from the clergy and giving it to the laity. Uh, because now the laity gets to vote on you know, who their leaders are. We have a school system that is going to standardize a language. Uh, we have a school system that is going to basically create the structures that we associate now with, with national identity. But if we actually look at what, the, what is actually in the Constitution, right, 99 articles, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of them deal with ecclesiastical issues. How do we administer a religious community? And what we see happening is, if we read these, it's legislating a diocese, right? This is just giving more shape to these hierarchical relationships that we see coming into, coming into their own in the, originally in the 18th century. So this community is becoming much more hierarchically arranged than happened beforehand. But these new, if we want to call them democratic controls that are being introduced, are designed to take power away from the old Armenian elites who were part of the larger tax collection system and at local levels continue to maintain a role, a role in, in certain tax collection, in certain commercial activities, uh, people who can act as you know, brokers between uh, Muslim notables in, in different areas, people who can finance uh, economic activity in certain areas, people who are really tied to this old order that is being kind of brushed away after, after 1839. So as the Armenian church is introducing these new controls, really they're just trying to take power away from these people and their allies in the clergy by giving the laity more control and the laity in a more democratic sense. And again, this is nothing new in the Armenian church. The laity has always had the deciding voice in determining who their leaders are. But by democratizing it further and putting more power in the hands of guildsmen, peasants, and what have you, you can take power away from these people tied to the old order of things, take power away from their allies in the clergy, and give these people more control over their own institutions. And what that does is it takes these Armenian institutions out of those old relationships of power, the very networks of power that state centralization wants to remove. The irony of it, however, is that now the church is being removed from these relationships of power. Right. The church, the elites, one of the foundations of their power is the fact that they have these relationships with Muslim notables, be they Kurdish emirs, whether they be Turkish aghas. But as we introduce reform in the 19th century and we cut off 
those people were being able to use the church as their own power base to establish and perpetuate those relationships, the church itself, and therefore the community by extension, loses its access to those relationships. And as a result, again, ironically, becomes more isolated. As an example of this isolation, we talked about the rivalry between two Armenian clergymen, Mergadich Krimian and Bogos Melikian. Krimian is a very interesting character, and uh, he's really typically held up as a, as a paragon of Armenian nationalism. He's well known because he ends up going to the Congress of Berlin to try and impress upon the delegates there the importance of integrating questions of Armenians and their concerns into whatever document they ultimately sign. Largely fails. But for a lot of people, this is what we see coming out of Krimian is an interest in articulating some type of Armenian sovereignty over the land of Armenia. But when we get into what he was and what he was actually trying to do, again, a much different picture comes into view. So Khrimian, after he spends his time in Istanbul as a labor migrant, comes to the realization that the only way to really help his people within the context of the Armenian world, or the Ottoman world in particular, is to become a priest. And he becomes a celibate priest. His wife and daughter passed away while he was in Istanbul. But he was uh, very concerned with the, the needs, wants, and desires of Armenian labor migrants and of the Armenian peasantry. And this is why he himself becomes a champion of the Armenian constitution. And if we kind of read between the lines, it's very clear that Krimian's influence is all over this document. And that he is really creating a pathway for Armenians who are at the margins of Ottoman life to chart a path to power. So Khrimian goes back to Van, becomes a clergyman, and begins trying to use the power of the patriarchate and by extension the power of the Ottoman state to enact reforms that will be of benefit to the vast majority of the Armenian community. So he is, in this sense, less an Armenian nationalist and more a Tanzimachi. He's much more someone who is at the forefront and places the Armenian community at the forefront of state centralization in a bid to better the lives of Armenians and thereby, and to do so, has to improve the level and quality of Ottoman imperial governance. So Khrimian is born in 1820. Around the same time, another Armenian is born. This is a guy named uh, Bogos Melikian. Uh, comes from much more humble backgrounds than had Krimian. So he doesn't have this, the kind of like dense social ties to the community that Krimian would have had. His only connections are those brokered by the institutions of the church itself. But what he also has is a penchant for violence. He had no problem using that, the threat of violence, to extort people, uh, to get things out of them, and thereby becomes a prolific fundraiser which, of course, vaults him ahead very quickly in the ranks of the Armenian church because he's proving how indispensable he is to their activities. And when he uses that violence, as he gains more notoriety, as he gains more uh, authority within the church, he uses that to begin abusing more members of his community, uh, forces them to do free labor for the government, forces them to do free labor for Muslim notables, uh, and in the course of doing so, establishes deeper connections with 
members of the government, members of the local elite, Muslim elite, and becomes very, very powerful and entrenched as a result. So Melikian enjoys all the support, and he's able to continue to act as a powerful intermediary uh, between these different groups. Uh, and that brings him, of course, to loggerheads with Khrimian. And they basically go at it over the course of 40 years. The first issue is, uh, I had mentioned beforehand that, so you have Bogos trying to force people to compel them to do unpaid labor for the government or for elites. And it revolved actually around building a bridge and a barracks for the military. And actually the Khrimian uh, on this basis is able to win the temporary banishment of, of Boros. That then creates problems uh, for Khrimian uh, because he has angered not just Boros, but his allies. So Khrimian now finds himself being targeted by certain members of the Kurdish elite, for example. It, it plays out not with Khrimian and Boros directly, but tied to this implementation of the, of the constitution in 1864. So you have these you know, kind of dying embers of the old uh, Kurdish emirates that are also trying to hold on to some type of power. And they're looking at this effort by the Armenians to introduce this constitution, and they rally behind the reactionary clergymen who don't want it, who are, of course, then backed by the Armenian elites in the area who also don't want to lose their access to power. So you have this convergence of Kurdish and provincial Armenian elite interests that leads to the Armenian clergy working with the old Kurdish emirs to murder the Armenian Katholikos of Akhtamar in 1864. So when we talk about the violence that is being deployed, it's very real. Khrimian himself survives at least two or three assassination attempts. In the 1870s, we have efforts in Vaughan to hold an election for prelate. So the prelate theoretically is going to be this very important person. Um, Kurdish allies of Boros actually flood the city center of Van and go up to every Armenian they see and start harassing them, saying, you know, who are you voting for? You know, why aren't you voting for Boros? Boros is the guy that you want. So you see this, these active campaigns of intimidation taking place. You see violence uh, being used to combat these efforts at reform launched by Armenians who again see themselves as people on the front lines of the battles over state centralization. So implementing the Armenian constitution in the Ottoman East provoked competition among those who wanted to implement a new order and those who liked the current distributions of power. The stakes of this split were high enough that banishment, threats of violence, and even murder came into the struggle. As a result of all of this, pro-reform Armenians asked for more direct state intervention in the region. To come back to Krimyan, in his report on provincial oppression to the, to the Ottoman state that he submits uh, in the 1870s, in the introduction, he lays out his plans for resolving things. Uh, and one of them is to say, you need to put more police stations and military bases out here. Based on what we know about, we're supposed to think about Ottoman Armenians. Can you imagine any Ottoman Armenian saying, please, more state coercion, right? It, it runs counter to what we, we think about. But what Khrimian is saying in the 1870s is, we have invested in your institutions. They're not paying off. So it's time for you to make sure that they work. And that captures, I think, very brilliantly this problem that, that they're confronting. But because we have these new formations of power taking place. 
we have to ask ourselves then. So Armenians are taking themselves out of these relationships of power. The state is accumulating more power, but not always able to exercise it. So who else is left? We have Muslim elites that remain in power, right? that continue to mobilize and marshal coercion. We have Muslim elites who are uh, very, very, who remain you know, able to author rebellions against the state, uh, who are able to intimidate groups, who are able to command the economy, who are able to influence um, politics, both within non-Muslim communities and elsewhere. So the state begins basically negotiating with them, but outside of the relationships that we'd seen beforehand. So effective power then remains in the hands of a Muslim state, the Ottoman Empire, and Muslim elites at the edges of the empire, such that political power now becomes the domain almost exclusively, I don't, I don't want to speak in uh, absolute terms, but what we see happening is this: the non-Muslims, as a result of these reforms, give up their power. It goes over to only Muslims. And as a result, the political enterprise becomes Muslim. Right? This, is, this is where we see the end. We see the end of a politics of difference. Right? We, we see it with the state's response to Kurdish rebellions. When the, the Turkmen rebel in Cilicia, you know, the only group that gets massacred are the Armenians. Uh, it, it's, not the, it's not the Turkmen who get massacred. It's their, their Armenian allies. We have two vestiges of Armenian royalty kicking around in the 19th century. One is in Gharabakh, the other is in Zeytun, and it's the ones in Zeytun who get basically uh, wiped out by, in 1862 against the backdrop of the state's interventions in, into Cilicia. The state is working towards a type of Muslim consensus. And any time the Armenians contest it, they become the people who are the threat to the state. They become the subversive element. And any Armenian effort to do that is dealt with harshly. So especially after the Russian war in 1877-78, we see the momentum building in that direction anyways with Armenian petitions increasingly falling on deaf ears, right? In the 1860s, when we first have the constitution, we see you know, lots of things happening and you know, the Armenians are managing to get certain Kurdish and Turkmen and Turkish landlords removed in some cases, at least sent into temporary exile. We see clergymen who are the allies of these Muslim elites being sent into, into internal exile. Uh, we see things happening, but in the 1870s, it slows down. And we see the state increasingly ignoring the pleas of the Armenians to resolve issues. And then really after the, the 1870s is when it really goes downhill very quickly. But this is the backdrop for Abdul Hamid's what we call Islamist policies. He's dealing with an empire now in which political power rests in the hands of Muslims and really nobody else. So, of course, that provides him with a language, a political language, a political idiom that he can share with these other groups. And any time Armenians try to contest it, again, uh, they find themselves increasingly sent to jail. They are accused of being rebels, insurrectionists, revolutionaries, Russian agents. They have no way of contesting the status quo. And this is why... The success of the, the Tanzimat in the Armenian community is catastrophic because it's completely cut them off from any networks of power. And this is why and it, it comes to a head in 1885 when Khrimian is ordered to go into internal exile at Jerusalem. And this being a clear symbol, this being a clear message to the Armenian community that 
you know, your institutions no longer work. Your reformers, these people on whose chests we pinned all sorts of medals for being exemplary Ottoman reformers, you're going to internal exile. That's the end of it. And as he's leaving, what does Khremian try to do? He brings back Boris Milikian, the guy who he'd spent decades trying to remove from power, the guy he had spent decades trying to remove from Armenian life. He brings, he brings him back because this is his last hope. If we can revive some element of the old order in which, yes, Armenians were oppressed, yes, Armenians did not have equal access or equal opportunity, but at the very least, they were part of the system. At the very least, they enjoyed some type of protection because they were part of the system. Again, not as equal members, uh, not as people on par with their Muslim neighbors, but they were at least part of the system. And what Khrimian sees now is they are no longer part of that system. So if you can bring this guy back, maybe, maybe we'll get back a little bit of what we had beforehand, is what he's thinking. So Bolz comes back into power, and that's the end of Khrimian's Ottoman life in 1885. He eventually goes on to be elected Katholikos uh, of all Armenians in Echmiadzin, which was in the Russian Empire in 1892. Uh, but his Ottoman life ends at that point. And really, for all intents and purposes, we see that this is now a place with no space for difference. This is a place where Armenians no longer have a say. And that's why they are so enthusiastic about the, the Young Turk Revolution. Uh, it's why the first thing they do is they bring back these constitutions. They bring back these high Tanzimat ideas. And yes, we do see the Young Turks at the outset going after these Kurdish landlords, these Kurdish leaders in the provinces who are creating problems uh, for the Armenians. But very quickly, the, the young Turks realize the same issue that Abdul Hamid had. We have weak state institutions. We have people out there who actually have effective power. So who, whose side are we going to take at the end of the day? It's clear. And, and that's, where we, that's where we end up. On that most joyous of notes, yes. That's all we have time for today. As usual, listeners can go to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we will post images, a bibliography, and more information about Richard Antaramian's book, Brokers of Faith, Brokers of Empire. That's all for this episode. Until next time.